And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. Today we're talking about Honeybee, Lessons from an Accidental Beekeeper by C. Marina Marchese. And I found this book at my local bookstore in like the $2 section. And so I picked it up because it looked interesting and we decided to read it for the podcast, even though it has little directly to do with feminism, I would say. Yeah, it's like 90% a book about beekeeping, which is dope because as soon as I own a house, I'm going to become a beekeeper. This has been my goal probably since Harmony met me. Um, But it's it says it's a memoir situation. It's like very little memoir, lots about beekeeping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The book did not get good reviews on um, Goodreads. I found it enjoyable to read, but I do think that's probably why because it talks about being a memoir, and um, we're given very little about our author's life. But it's still an interesting book for me because it's very. She tries to thread in beekeeping and honey into, like, all aspects of society and even her personal world. And I like that concept of cohesiveness. Yeah, I do, too. I still enjoyed reading it for the most part. I do think, though, it was a case of mismarketing because, like, the description of the book and what the book actually is are two very different things. I, I enjoyed it for the most part. I think my biggest criticism is that, especially towards the end, for me, the author came off a little bit holier than thou when talking about, like, all of the benefits of honey and kind of how everyone should be switching to these things. And, like, she made some really good points. But after the, like, fourth chapter about how, like, eco-friendly and sustainable honey is and, like, why it's better than chemicals and stuff like that, I was a little like, all right, I fucking get it. Like, no, I was just going to say, for me, there's, like, a time and a place for for everything as long as you do your research about it. And so by the end, I think I was feeling unfairly frustrated. I understand. She does get a little bit holier than that. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit later because I think that it plays into feminism a little bit yeah you too i was gonna say before though that the book kind of like the book kind of reads like a blog post to me a a little bit like it's just one long like collection of personal personal yet analytical information like personalized analytical information yeah i could see that i especially i think for me in the chapters where she does talk more about her personal life and like her experiences directly with beekeeping i could definitely see that like when she talks about her first experience trying to hive the the colony and stuff like that that felt very blog posty to me yeah i enjoyed it i like the fact that she personalized it even though it is a book about beekeeping and i'm glad that we read it for the podcast because Even though I have not had this dream as long as Maggie, I have since discovered, especially through these two books that we have just read, that I very much need a beehive in my life. (laughs) 
So it was an enjoyable read. And I think that it's good for us to break out of our normal narratives because on this podcast, we do primarily read fiction. I think this is the first nonfiction book we've read, period. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like an instruction manual, but it's not an unreadable instruction manual. It's not dry. Yeah, it's definitely very much like a beginner's overview of the basic things that you probably want to know about like beekeeping and honey in general. And I did really enjoy it for those aspects. I learned a lot too. Like I've been, because I've been interested in beekeeping for so long, the meetings that she talks about, they're really popular in my area. And so I've been to a couple of them. So like I have a general basis and understanding, but I haven't, because I don't have bees of my own, there's only so much I can participate in right now. So it was cool to get more of like a deep dive besides just the basic stuff. But I think she also did a really good job of making it informative without being like, an overwhelming amount of information either yeah it was informative without being just a deluge of stuff that I'm never going to be able to keep in my head yeah and I like too that she put the appendix at the end too because that does give us like more comprehensive details but it's not it's not something I want to read while I'm reading like the entire book because that's something that you kind of like need to come back to. Like you can read and then you come back to, which is kind of how I feel about most nonfiction books. Yeah, I agree. So do you want to talk about capitalism? Yeah, because of the personal aspects of this story, like the author is, a, is in a struggle essentially with the capitalist society we live in the entire time. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting because it opens up and the memoir part of this book What we essentially learn the most about this author is that she has a cool job working, I think, in New York City as a creative ad person, and she gets to travel to China a lot. But it's still not super fulfilling for a variety of reasons. Like, she's not given quite the creative control that she craves. And throughout most of this book, she's still in that job. She doesn't earn enough income to quit her job right away from beekeeping. And it's just a very relatable feeling. But also there's another level of like capitalism critique that we talked a little bit last episode on, whereas like bees themselves are constantly working. And unless you're the queen, you are just like another cog in the machine. Yeah, she's I don't know. I just agree. Like she's in a super relatable position where like she's got a good job. There's cool aspects about it. And I think she does a really good job also without you know, like naming or shitting on her company or anything being like, these are the good aspects of my job. Like I do get to be creative. I get to use my degrees. I get to travel a lot. That's really awesome. But like she designs essentially giftware for people. And so like, I think also something that's interesting is the idea that she works for a relatively smaller firm in comparison to the way that most large giftware firms work. And because they're a smaller firm with less resources, even that aspect of like large capitalism affects her enjoyment of her job. Because if they had more money, it's not like her ideas are bad and that's why they're being shot down. It's that they're unfeasible given the competition in the field. It's just all so... Like, I can just see the way this plays out, you know? Mm -hmm. It's it's just the story of this average person whose hobby really, like, saves them from a life of just drear, almost, you know? But I feel like it's almost kind of sad in a way because, well, I don't know, because she is, for most of the book, able to do her beekeeping stuff and keep her job. But when the idea of monetizing hobbies, like, really is something I struggle with. And she's an artist, 
So it's like kind of her goal, I guess, probably monetize the thing that she loves. But I also think that we shouldn't have to live in a society where we have to monetize these like simple aspects of joy. Yeah, I think that it's I think that it's slightly less of attention in this book just because it seems pretty clear and maybe it's just because we know or like it's implied from the beginning that like she does go on to become like make money off her honeybee enterprise but like she never really seems to struggle with that tension if that makes sense like she is perfectly happy being able to make a living off doing something that she that like started as a hobby and she loves but I agree that I feel sometimes like I don't know how that relates to my own life. Like even sometimes with the podcast, right? Like this is a hobby Harmony and I do. And it's not like we make very much money at all off of it. But we have made a very little soon. bit of money. <laughs> but like there is some. And even that it's like, well, it's cool that this can, you know, make a little bit of money. But also it's my hobby. And like I feel tension about that sometimes even just as we're doing this. Yeah, I mean, I'm someone who has, you know, gone into writing as a career path for the most part. And so, like, I don't have any qualms with people who do that. I think as a reader and as somebody who's reading this for a feminist podcast, what I was cognizant of while I was trying to analyze this book is how much this book could or could not play into, like, one of those female entrepreneur books And I guess my general feelings about the idea of the female entrepreneur, because women should make their own businesses and do what they love. But I also, I also don't think that we need, I also think it's sad that we have to monetize things like art and, and podcasting and money and that that's so necessary in our society and that we constantly have to be working worker bees. And she talks a lot in this book about, how she is a worker bee wanting to be her queen bee. So once she owns her own business, she feels like the queen bee. And we don't get to see a lot of that personal struggle. But I guess as somebody who is working in the creative field, I imagined that there must have been a lot of struggle in order to get there. And I don't know. I guess I feel like I feel a little bit like the idea of entrepreneurship sometimes feels disingenuine. Because it offers people this idea of fulfillment that isn't always gratifying to people. Because at the end of the day, working is hard (laughs) and entrepreneurship is hard (laughs) and capitalism is just hard. So this book came out almost like it was interesting because it was kind of pro-capitalism in the fact that this woman goes on to become a very successful small business owner, but anti-capitalism because she gets out of the corporate chain and like goes on to do her own thing. And so that dichotomy was just interesting to me. Yeah, I can see that. And I think also thinking about the, the worker bee versus queen bee metaphor versus how bees actually work. Like when she's the queen bee, what she really means is that she has complete creative power. She's doing something that she loves. She gets to, you know, make her own schedule and all of that but if we're talking about an actual queen bee right like she's probably working 
more to a certain extent now that she owns her own business than Mm -hmm. she did when she was a worker bee which is a switch as to how bees actually work although i guess to be fair you could also say that when she was still in her corporate job she was essentially doing two jobs because Mm -hmm. she was still selling her honey products so like maybe for her it does you know like she's she's just doing this one thing now so maybe it does feel like less labor yeah i don't know it's I just feel happy for her specifically, I think, because it comes across in the book that, like, she does find this gratifying success. But I do agree with you that, like, across the board, I don't think that that's true. And I don't think that monetizing hobbies for people always is, like, a gratifying, successful thing. Um, Because just because you're doing what you love doesn't mean that it's not work still, you mm-hmm. know? So I guess... Going along this lens of analyzing labor, one of the questions that came up for me for reading both of these books is that, like, I don't even know how to phrase this in a question, but bees are amazing, and bee society is amazing, and they're super duper smart, and both of these books were tributes to bees, I feel, um, and made me really love them, but Bee society is all about labor, even for the queen, really, who gets pampered her entire life. Like her whole job is having babies and that's labor. And so if we're looking at this from a feminist lens, and I think that Maggie and I are both of the the feminism camp where like capitalism and patriarchy play into each other and we need to get rid of both in order to actually succeed as a society. Um is there a difference between like capitalism and labor and how how do we feel about that idea of laboring like is labor good for society or i don't know yeah i think that sometimes there can be a difference between capitalism and labor like i don't want to use the cliched phrase labor of love but i do think that it has a certain place potentially there's so many criticisms of communism essentially where it's like well if we just give everything if we just give people everything they need then no one will work and everyone will be lazy right and like i think even just in the you know month to six weeks depending on where you are of Mm -hmm. self-isolation that we've been seeing right now we've seen that that's really not true because so many people have just kind of if they can, if they're, you know, because we are still living in a capitalist society, but like if they can, they've really switched their labors to something that does fulfill them and is more productive. And I think in a lot of cases, those pursuits are more artistic, whether it's cooking and baking or like writing or doing things like I have a bunch of friends now in this time who have made podcasts and done the thing that they've always wanted to do and like felt like they haven't had time to. I think that some of the danger is when we have to equate labor with productivity with your, like, value as a human, you Mm. know? I think it's when all of those things become a chain together that we see major problems. But I think that if labor can be isolated and fulfilling and joyful, it's not inherently an issue. It's when it gets sucked into all of those other things and becomes 
not joyful and something that you absolutely have to do that we see other problems arise as well and that's i think the place where labor fits in negatively to a capitalist society where it might not in a more socialist and communist society because people would have more freedom of choice of where to put their efforts you know yes that makes a lot of sense thank you maggie um but along those lines do you think like bringing it back to the text and I know that bees aren't people, <laughs> and I know that we're not quite sure what level of consciousness they have, but it's talked about in this book, especially because she is a beekeeper, so, like, this is her product. It's talked a lot, there's a lot of language in this book relating bee product- productivity and to, like, goodness. Like, this is how you have the most productive bees. Mm-hmm. And how did you feel about that? Because this is, like, a... It is like a little sonnet to uh, to bees and to bee society. I think it's kind of difficult to equate because to a certain extent, productive bees does mean bees that are like literally going to survive to the next mm-hmm. winter because they've created enough honey for themselves. Um, and if you're lucky and the conditions are right, most seasons you're also going to get extra honey that you can safely utilize for yourself right so like productive bees are good bees in the sense that productive bees are bees that are like literally going to be able to survive the elements but i do think that there is an aspect of that kind of like i was saying before where the idea of like labor and productivity equals human worth that does relate back to society where like we have a lot of pressure on ourselves to also think that productivity equals goodness and like increased value and stuff like that and that's that's that shouldn't be true you know like your productivity as a human on any given day doesn't make you a better or worse human so i think sometimes it is kind of hard to relate because i mean i guess in a capitalist society right like a productive human is also a human that's gonna survive yeah but it's I think it is kind of difficult just because bees don't necessarily create the space for joy in their lives, especially because they only live for like six weeks. And yeah. that's just because they're insects, you know, whereas like for humans, it's a much more complicated process, if that makes sense. Yeah. And also bees don't necessarily have the same amount of resources that humans do because we've taken over the entire planet. So we have all of these resources and we have things like shelter and we have enough of it to guarantee that we can survive without being productive all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's even more fucked up than that because something I actually like legitimately didn't know before going into this book was that there are almost no wild beehives left and that mm-hmm. almost all of them are managed and owned by beekeepers like that fucking shocked me so it goes even farther than that like bees don't have enough resources because they are now our resource and one that we desperately need to survive so there's now this weird dichotomy between the idea that like we need to create more resources for bees so that bees is our resource are more productive because we can't live without them yeah that's let's talk a little bit about that because i also felt like, I wasn't, I wasn't sure how to feel as somebody who has now decided she wants to keep bees. And we know that keeping bees is probably, like, good for the planet, right? Because you have more pollinators. But, yeah, we've completely 
not domesticated them, but yeah, we've made them our agriculture. And part of me wonders too, that if like, if humans had decided not to keep bees anymore, would they have survived this long? I don't, I don't know. What are your thoughts on the beekeeping? (laughs) I think that at this point in time, beekeeping probably is a positive thing, especially for your local environment and your local ecosystem. But I agree that I don't know if it was a positive thing to have been begun, if that makes sense. But it's been going on like the historical context she pulls into this book really beautifully is that like beekeeping has been going on for way longer than you think it has like for millennia like BCE (laughs) you know the before the common era situation like beekeeping has been going on. So I think it's really difficult to know the answers of any of those questions when they've been going on for like like beekeeping has been a part of humans lives for almost as long as humans have been humans essentially so it's hard to separate those things out Mm -hmm. so i feel really conflicted about it i think that for myself beekeeping still feels like a positive thing i can do for myself and my community and like encouraging my own like ecosystems and stuff like that but it's really hard to know how different things would be now if we never if it never became such a mass thing and whether wild bees would still like exist more and stuff, I will say I would be curious to know because, and this isn't a shortcoming of the book. It's just something that wasn't included because it would have been really technical, but I am curious to know the actual numbers of wild hives versus like domesticated hives just for my own curiosity. Right. Cause like you hear the, the idea that like the majority of bees now in the world are kept by beekeepers but does that mean that we've got like 300,000 hives that are like kept by beekeepers these are all random numbers and like 50,000 wild hives or does it mean that we have like 350,000 kept hives and like 10,000 wild hives you know I'm curious as to what that balance is how do you feel about it though do you agree with me do you disagree I think I agree I think that what you're talking about, I think the good for human society, which sounds kind of bad, but also for all animals, because we discover, I mean, we, we know that we need bees in order to make all sorts of vegetables and flowers and like the entire world, not just humans really depends on those in order to like eat and live and continue lots of species going So I think that the good outweighs the bad. But another thing that you said about like creating your own ecosystem really struck me because that was very much emphasized in this book. And it's really one of the delightful things I think about beekeeping, at least painted in this book. But it kind of reminds me, you know, we're going through COVID-19 right now. I read an article recently about how this trend on Instagram and TikTok has become really popular among Gen Zs called Cottagecore. And the idea is that Maggie's looking at me like this isn't relevant, but it's relevant, I promise. So oh, the no, idea I just that, I just don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm curious. Oh, okay. okay, so there's this trend called Cottagecore. And it's essentially like people who are a lot like Maggie and me, I think, <laughs> who really enjoy baking and like really enjoy dresses and like the idea of living in a little cottage in the woods. They've made this whole aesthetic out of it. And there is this great article, I think, in The Guardian about how this is really popular right now because the outside is our new taboo. 
Like we can't go outside. We don't live necessarily, a lot of us don't live in societies where you can easily access that or like in cities where you can easily access the outdoors or be completely isolated and just be with nature. So the idea of this whole trend is like people becoming more self-reliant. And I think that we're seeing that a lot in COVID. Like a lot of people are baking bread and that's not something people commonly do because usually we go to the grocery store and we get our bread. Um, And a lot of people are learning how to sew or knit and doing crafts and stuff. And it's something I think that people who are drawn to beekeeping, like I know I was a little bit before COVID, are interested in because they want to be able to like have their own honey and be able to create their own honey products. So that's something that Mariana Marchese talks about a lot about the idea of, you know, she grows her garden to feed her bees. And then like every part of what she can get from her bees ends up getting used somewhere else. It ends up going into skincare products or her own honeys or baked goods or like it helps heal her in some way. It ends up being a salve. So the idea of like self-reliance and creating your own ecosystem seems like a good thing to me because, I mean, even though then it maybe like takes away a little bit from our community, but it really like helps invest in our local community. I don't know. What do you think? Well, the I totally agree with you. The self-reliance aspect of this whole thing has gotten so far that there are seed shortages in the United States for the first time, essentially in history because that's how many people right now want to be growing their own vegetables and realizing that you know potentially the way we do things isn't necessarily the best way i think that Mm -hmm. there's going to be for a long time now a tension between the mass agriculture that we have and being able to grow for and sustain for yourself that i feel a little bit conflicted on when i think about things like world hunger and stuff like that because it really is a privilege Mm -hmm. to live in a place and have access even to just such a variety of seeds where you can be able to grow essentially yourself an entire complete nutritious sort of garden essentially you know instead of having to just focus on one or two crops to survive but I do think that it is probably ultimately a, a good thing this this idea And I think that part of it is because of the idea of, you know, like reusability and sustainability and things Mm -hmm. like that. And something that I find really interesting about the way that she describes how she and all of the beekeepers in her area work is that idea of that nothing extra goes to waste. There's she has such a love for her bees, right? Like they're very, very, very careful to make sure that their bees have the resources that they need, right? Like there's numbers. You need to make sure that they have at least 60 pounds of honey stored for the winter and things like that, like at least. And making Mm -hmm. sure that you aren't taking resources that they need. But I also know that there's a criticism just generally speaking, um, especially for people who eat plant-based and things like that, about the idea that like if you eat honey, you're taking resources from the bees and stuff. And I have to do a lot more research on that. But I will say the way that she presents it in this book is like, when bees have too many resources and don't have the ability to build out more space for themselves, they actually end up getting themselves into trouble because there's too many bees and not enough resources in their specific hive. And because we've ended up in this unfortunate situation where there aren't really wild hives anymore, where they can just continue expanding out to their heart's desire, they swarm and they leave in like 
who knows what happens to them afterwards. So like making sure that you're helping them regulate correctly is like a really important part. And so like reusing all of the stuff, the propolis, the beeswax, the honey itself is like a super important and sustainable part of beekeeping as well that I really appreciated that like nothing goes to waste. And by harvesting these extra resources, they're ultimately benefiting their hives. Um, while we're, I, this wasn't a question that I had written down, but I, I just thought of it now and I think it relates. Something like I guess an ethical question that I kind of felt or had while I was reading this book was the idea about requeening hives and <laughs> how queens in the wild typically live for approximately five years. But after the second or third year, their hives really do have issues. So lots of beekeepers actually rehive or requeen their hives every year or two. And I really didn't know how I felt about that, to be perfectly honest. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the practice. Yeah, there were a few things that Marchie's talked about in here that were interfering with like natural life that beekeepers do or can do and that sometimes even like result in the death of bees that made me uncomfortable I guess (laughs) as someone who's like oh yeah keeping bees is great yeah I don't know about the whole requeening hives it's difficult because we just read a book about like what happens when queens die naturally yeah yeah naturally die and like the natural requeening of their hives and it sounds like it results in death anyway, but it does seem very callous, especially because I just read an account of personified bees. And then also after reading this book, like she loves her bees and she gives them little personalities. So it seems kind of callous to like, what what happens to the queen bee? I don't know. Does she just die? It kind of seems like it's implied that she just like, she has to die. She's just released. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought about it. And like, But then at the same time, I think we also come into this tension that we've been talking about, about the fact that bees are now part of our agriculture and to survive and be sustainable, we do need hives to be at their greatest level of productivity, right? So that means that you need to have a queen who is at her healthiest all the time. And I just found it really... It, it was, like, interesting, but it did make me feel really uncomfortable, to be perfectly honest. Um, mm. And this isn't to blame the author of the book or anything. Like, I'm, this is clearly a common practice that I just didn't know about in beekeeping. It's just one that, like, I think I want to do more research about, about why it's necessary. And when I keep my own bees, I don't know if that's a choice I would... I have to do a lot more research to understand whether that would be a choice that I make for myself. I do think that part of it is... Because she has that scene in the book where her queen disappears mm-hmm. uh, from one of her hives. And her hives, her hive like delves into chaos. And I think that part of it is to try and keep all of your... Like your whole colony as healthy and sustainable as possible. But it does feel weirdly like the sacrifice of one for the good of the many. You know? Yeah! Yeah! And like talking about our capitalism argument before, like, do we really need beehives to be as productive as they can be? Or like, what what would happen if humans hadn't decided to beekeep? Like, would bees just... Is that what they need to do? And would they just all die out without us? Like, I guess I just don't know enough about bees. You know, I've only read one book about it (laughs) to really comprehend what the effects would be should 
you know, humans just butt out and let bees figure it out by themselves. And whether or not that's more ethical than keeping them alive or like letting them do it. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) To be fair, she does dive into some of the consequences of letting your worker bees start laying queens themselves and like seeing what happens there. And there are negative consequences of it, namely that your drone to worker bee ratio becomes way off. And that's an issue because drones are fucking useless. (laughs) Something that was really something that was real right in last week's book. And I will say, having read this book, The Bees by Laylene Paul does feel for the most part, like really accurate. Again, we're we're mm-hmm. talking about like one fictional book to one nonfiction <laughs> book and kind of general <laughs> knowledge that's been gathered. So neither of us are trying to say we're an expert, but like the drones just do nothing. So like when you allow more of them to be laid, it really can throw off your hive. But yeah, man, I don't know. And I think it is also interesting because the people that we're following in this book for the most part are like they're not industrial beekeepers, right? They're called migratory beekeepers. They're not the people who are going around the country all the time with their hives pollinating everything that needs to be pollinated. They're just, you know, hobbyist beekeepers or small business beekeepers. Yeah. And so I do think it's interesting. But then also when we're tying that into productivity, right? Like our author does get to achieve her dream of making this whole enterprise her own business or her own livelihood and in that case yeah she probably does need her bees to be as productive as possible all the time because if she doesn't have the excess resources that they create to create her business then she can't survive and then she ends up back in the corporate capitalism and it's all just a fucking mess (laughs) yeah yeah but it does kind of seem to play like the idea of a ceo needing all of its underlings to be as productive as possible in order for the big corporation to survive, as we've seen through COVID-19. And I'm sure we'll see during the impending economic collapse. Like, yeah. it does feel like, is there a better way to do this? But we're also applying very human ideas and philosophies to another creature. Yeah, I just don't know if it's exploitative or not. That's the issue. I'm like, I'm trapped here where I'm like, I love this. This is great for the environment. I love all of the benefits that can happen from this. I love the idea of like helping out your community and supporting local businesses and all of these great things that can happen with honey and how it seems wonderful. But I'm also just not completely sure if it's not a little exploitative. (laughs) <laughs> I think that yeah I agree I think that something interesting that comes up in the book though is that wild hives tend to work themselves to death um oh, and, yeah. and colonized hives that's probably not a good phrase for it but like hives that are owned by beekeepers the colonies that are owned by beekeepers tend to do that less because they're generally speaking in locations and areas where more resources are available so the bees do get to work a little bit less hard so then there's also Mm -hmm. that aspect of like okay if wild hives have resources that are so scarce that they have to literally work themselves to death like to early deaths to survive like i think that also plays into the exploitation process as well yeah and then of course also continuing over this conversation is that overarching knowledge where like if we stopped doing all of this the likelihood is that bees would die and things wouldn't get pollinated and like the entirety of our planet and ecosystem would collapse so like it's kind of at least at this point in climate change and everything sort of like just necessary anyways because (laughs) everything's gonna die otherwise well wait so do we know that like if humans didn't exist 
do we know that bees would die out or are we just do are you just saying if we don't have beehives to counteract like human man-made consequences to bees bees would die out i i don't know if it's true that without humans (laughs) i well it's hard to say i i don't know if it's true that if humans had never started beekeeping that bees wouldn't exist but i do think we have most likely reached a point now and i think the book also implies it that if people suddenly stopped keeping bees and taking care of their bees we would see extraordinarily negative consequences yeah we've almost domesticated them to a certain extent but i mean it does sound like i don't know uh it does sound like a little bit like if we give the bees resources then they are able to be more productive and they're able to live like happier lives which I guess also kind of correlates to human society. Like if you give your workers more resources, like if the if the bees are planted near good gardens and, you know, plants that are healthy <laughs> and don't have pesticides, they're more likely to prosper. And then you're more likely to prosper. Yeah, it's all just this weird interconnected thing at this point that I, I don't, I just, I don't know, you know, like I don't know the answer to that. I I've just gotten in the impression that at this point, like, bees kind of do need humans to help take care of them because mm-hmm. we fuck the planet in so many other ways that, like, they're not going to get that excess of resources otherwise. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff she talks about at the end? The benefits of honey? Yeah. Okay. You were talking a little bit earlier about how it gets a little holier than thou. And one of the things I read... The one thing that struck me while I was reading was that she focused a lot on alternative medicines. And I was reading that thinking, like, my first thought was like, oh, alternative medicines, you know? And then I was like, wait a second, Harmony, that's a very westernized perspective and a very patriarchal perspective because alternative medicine doesn't necessarily mean don't vaccinate. It just means that, like, honey is good for you, which we know. We know that honey helps sore throats. We know that certain herbs are good for you. We know that ginger helps sore throats. I've been eating a ton of ginger and like it does help me when I feel sick. Yeah, I don't know. What were your thoughts on that? Like the medicine aspect of honey? That part I thought was really, really cool. That was not the part for me that got holier than thou. For me, that part was specifically when she was talking about skincare products and stuff and like how it's really necessary to be able to like pronounce everything and stuff and like know exactly what's going on in in your body and like... Mm -hmm. To a certain extent, I think that's correct, but I, as part of my nebulous work that keeps coming up, but I can't say what I do, that is to a certain extent kind of a myth that anything that you can't pronounce or don't know off the top of your head is automatically bad for you. Mm-hmm. And that was the part for me after like the fifth or sixth time it was said, I was like, okay, I fucking get how you feel about this. And it's probably partially just because I don't necessarily agree in all cases but specifically about the western medicine part i thought that was super poignant like where she's talking about her experience in china where it's like yeah you're not necessarily going to go around and find a super easily accessible pharmacy although of course those exist there as well there are apothecaries with doctors around every corner and they'll help you like you just need to be able to either speak chinese or have a translator like and they'll give you remedies that actually work like even the idea of like I feel like honey all around the world, even in the United States, is viewed as having medicinal pro- medicinal properties, mm-hmm. even just in the sense of like, 
I feel like every mother ever tells you when you have a sore throat, right? Like drink hot water with honey or something like that. You know, like it's a baseline for how most people even raised in Western culture think about treating a sore throat, right? Like, oh, I need a cup of tea that's like really heavy with honey and stuff. Like mm-hmm. honey is so deeply ingrained in our idea of medicine and feeling good. And I love the way she was able to explore that it has so much more to it than that. And like the salves that she was able to create and stuff for me, that part really, really worked. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't verbally communicate this before, so I'm just going to go back when I said that it's a patriarchal perspective. What I meant is that um, at a certain point in Western medicine, men took over, you know, there used to be people just kind of relying on their moms and grandmas and, then men took over and they were like, we are doctors and we're not going to allow women to be doctors. And therefore, sometimes like I, I've written about herbalists before and have received backlash from various men being like, why are you writing about herbalists? These people don't vaccinate. And I was like, no, this woman is a registered nurse. She definitely vaccinates her kids. She promises. Um, like I've written about them before and then have gotten backlash. But there's a certain perspective that like all 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 alternative medicine is bad or like the idea that a lot of people not everyone but a lot of people become very reliant on like it's not valid unless it comes from a doctor and there are certain things where that's true and like any major issue that you're dealing with you should definitely go see a doctor there's a reason why we talk a lot about like being a big proponent of accessible health care in this podcast mm-hmm. but there's also like common sense things like Honey helps sore throats that I think um, is sometimes missing in modern society where people don't know that and don't trust certain things when all you have to do is like open a book. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it goes back historically exactly to the point you're talking about with, in many ways, the advent of Western medicine and having it being regulated strictly to doctors and the idea that in like the 16th, 17th, even and maybe not the 18th century. Maybe that's too far. But no, I guess so. But like in those centuries, like women, like midwives and stuff like that were suddenly viewed as witches because they had any sort of like alternative knowledge, even if that knowledge was correct. And in many cases at the time, more correct than what the doctors were fumbling about because Western medicine was still such in its infancy, you know, and people were still figuring stuff out in different ways than they are today. And because of that whole like literal witch hunt that came from the idea that like any woman that had knowledge of, of illness and how to treat it with natural remedies was a witch. And, you know, the witch hunts that came from that which is, of course, an oversimplification of a really large topic, but <laughs> it was, was part of that for sure. Like, because of that, it's become taboo now to think about any of those things. And like, as somebody who wouldn't be alive today without Western medicine, obviously, I'm grateful that it exists. But I agree that it totally is a patriarchal and feminist issue that we've become so focused as hyper focused as society on Western medicine, that knowledge that humans have had for generations upon generations about the benefits of certain herbs and things like that has become negative right like you can't do any of that and even still today it is at least to my knowledge mostly women who keep that alive and going and native cultures of course um 
And I mean, like, not even just like just non-Western cultures, like as we were, as we saw in the book, there is a lot of herbal medicine that goes on in Asia. Yeah. But she seemed to be more in favor of. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And I do think that it's important to know and understand the effects of what you have of what you're doing has on your body. And I loved the part that where she was talking about the fact that like, there's lots of things that we use commonly today, like pesticides, where we really don't know what the effects on ourselves are. And we're, you know, really starting to see the negative effects on the environment and things like that. And I do think it's important to be critical I think for me, it was just some of it by the end got to be too much, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, especially because we do, I mean, I'm I, I'm not an expert, but we do know that sometimes like natural skincare companies can be a little exploitative and that whole idea sometimes has problems with it. There's like a whole camp of people that are like, we only want natural uh, products, but skincare products are FDA regulated, so they don't always come out being natural. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, yeah, not everything we don't know is bad. And sometimes you got to learn to trust. But also, yeah, I just love the idea that beekeeping has allowed our author to have more agency over her body and herself and the products that she creates. It's that self-reliance idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that part of it I also really appreciated too. And I think that it is really empowering to be able to feel self-reliant in that way and then also offer it as, an, as something for your community and your friends and family. Like, I think it's really cool to be able to take, take a product that you have, you know, helped to nurture and create and be able to turn it into something that you feel good about using in and on your body like I think that's absolutely fantastic yeah it's beautiful it makes me makes me want to like hug things and gosh I just want to keep bees now I want a yard so I can keep bees okay what do you think about like the class aspects of this so our author was able to do this we assume she's middle class but she has like some sort of property to do it on and most of us can't it is beekeeping inaccessible to people like even you and me Maggie who are probably like we're considered middle class and then like what about people underneath us like that self-reliance thing only works as we were talking about before if you have the means to be self-reliant yeah she lives in the bougie part of Connecticut let me tell you (laughs) (laughs) which isn't like a a, which isn't a knock on her for those of you who don't know I grew up in the bougie part of Connecticut so like I get it but I definitely think that there is I think that there can be a class aspect of it, even if it's just the fact that, like, even while she was working her corporate job, where she was definitely commuting a really long time every day. Again, as someone who grew up in that part of Connecticut, the, the Metro North Line takes fucking forever, even as a commuter, to get for, from your house to where you need to go every day. But, like, she was working a steady enough full-time job where, like, she had the ability to invest in all of that stuff, and she had the extra time outside of her 9-to-5 job to be able to invest in all of this stuff. Like, she was able to give her weekends to learning about all of it and stuff like that. And I definitely think that class can have a major aspect on it. 
I know where I live, there's actually a lot of companies out here that will help you set up your own bees and will help you take care of them for a really, really, really low price and like $10. And I think that that I think that services like that can help break down the class barrier of taking down bees even or of taking care of bees, even if it's just because it assists so much with the time poverty aspect of it. But I definitely agree that like the luxury I think that beekeeping to a certain extent probably is or can be a luxury because you probably have to be at a certain place in life financially and with time where you feel like you have the resource both of those resources to invest in bees. Having said that though, besides those services in my area that I know will like set up your bees and help you take care of them for a really low cost, I really don't actually know what the cost is to invest in like bees in general. Like I don't know how much it costs to get all of the equipment you need and I don't know how much bees like a colony of bees costs. I kind of just assume it's on the more expensive side because it seems like it would be But, like, I agree that there definitely probably is a certain level of class privilege in most cases to be able to have the time and extra resources to expend in beekeeping. But I think, to be fair, you could say that about pretty much any hobby, right? Like, hobbies are something that are afforded to people, generally speaking, of higher classes simply because they have the time and resources. And I think that that's not true of everything, right? Like... But in a lot of cases, that is probably true. Which is so sad because I feel like hobbies are so gratifying. And I know a lot of people are really hating this quarantine, but like I I know myself and a few other people I've talked to are really appreciating like the extra time we get in order to do hobbies. Like it feels like people who are in a privileged position and can, of course. Yeah, I don't know. Like hobbies are a really gratifying thing and it's it's nice to spend time on something for nothing other than the fact that it makes you happy (laughs) like I think that should be a human right for sure and I I also want to make it clear that I'm not trying to say that it's like impossible for people living in poverty to have hobbies like obviously that's not true and obviously everyone deserves happiness I just do think there is certain kinds of hobbies probably like beekeeping that require lots of extra time and lots of extra resources that probably are more inaccessible if you are living in poverty, if that makes sense. Yeah. And for the record, because I looked it up while reading this book, or maybe I looked it up while reading our book last week, beekeeping tends to run for initial costs from what I've seen from articles on the internet from like $400, $500 um, for initial startup costs, which was cheaper than I thought it was. Yeah. It's still kind of a lot of money. Like, <laughs> it's a lot of money to drop in one sitting. It depends on your financial situation. It was like cheap enough for me to be like, someday I can totally convince my partner who makes more yeah. money than me <laughs> to drop some money on this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else we want to talk about, Miss Mags? Anything we haven't touched upon? I think we got a lot in for this book. <laughs> Yeah, I do too. I guess I just want to leave off on the fact that, like, I think that overall, this book was really lovely and quite empowering. Because I think that ultimately, I find the idea of being able to be self-reliant in such a way, especially in such a way that brings you such joy as the author clearly has for all of this stuff, to ultimately be, like, a really empowering process. And, like... 
yeah i don't know that's i think that's just like my final takeaway from this because like we we critique some of the ideas and stuff and i think i feel a little bit weird about doing that with memoirs and nonfiction and stuff because it's like somebody's actual life <laughs> you know yeah but- i'm not trying just for the record in case she ever listens i'm not trying to critique her and her life i'm just trying to f- analyze based off of the ideas presented and yeah, I'm not same. like critiquing the text necessarily, just the ideas presented and what the um, extent of those ideas could be if we take them further. Yeah, I totally agree. And I would also say for anyone who's listening to this, if you're actually interested in keeping bees, I would really recommend this book. Just don't go into it expecting it to be like a memoir about beekeeping. It really is like lessons about beekeeping from someone who sort of fell into it and like advice about how to do it yeah i really enjoyed it though as someone who like can't read technical books (laughs) yeah it was a really accessible way to just begin thinking about the more technical parts of beekeeping do we think ultimately that this was a feminist book i think kind of i think kind of because there's a lot of emphasis placed on the fact that bees are a matriarch I don't know if it's, like, the best feminist book, but it's, like, a woman, you know, finding self-empowerment. So I think in that way it's feminist. Do I think it was written to be feminist? No. But do I think there are feminist... I mean, definitely not, because it's a manual on beekeeping. (laughs) Do I think there are feminist themes interwoven throughout? Yes. That's how I feel about it, too. It definitely... It's a manual on beekeeping, so it definitely wasn't meant to be feminist, but I think that there are a lot of feminist themes throughout it both in talking about bees and the way they work but also just about like the products and things that the author was able to do for herself with the beekeeping yes that being said i do think there's a caveat that it's not necessarily intersectionally feminist because it's one woman's experience and one woman who had the means to find that happiness and we don't get enough of her personal struggle to know how much she struggled but Mm -hmm. In real life, I imagine that there is, and for most people, I imagine that there would be quite a struggle in order to get here, depending on what your means are. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I would also say that lots of this is also based around the idea of, like, she's she's serving a community who is also probably in a similar situation to to her. Like, her greatest success and stuff came from farmer's markets and stuff, which can be a sign of a more gentrified area sometimes it's not it really depends and stuff but like yeah yeah i agree with all of that yeah all right what are you reading i am reading a controversial pick i'm reading 1000 white women the journals of mary of may dodd by jim fergus oh okay why is it controversial (laughs) Uh, i don't think it's like hugely controversial but i was looking through some reviews of it and it's so it's a book based on a request that the chief of the Cheyenne people made to Ulysses S. Grant where he asked for 1,000 white women as wives for his people so that the next generation of Cheyenne Americans could be more assimilated properly with society and essentially so that these two cultures could meet. And it's an alternate history as to what would have happened if Grant had said yes and sent 1,000 white women to be wives essentially to the Cheyenne people and it's controversial just because Jim Fergus is a white author so like there's some controversy over you know because like all of this ends up taking place in 
this Native American culture. At least that's what I got from it. I'm like really, really early into it, but the I like alternate history books and the concept intrigued me. So I'm just trying to read it with like a critical lens of being like, obviously as somebody who's not Native American, I can't decide whether something is good or bad representation, but like reading the representation with a grain of salt and knowing that that criticism's out there, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Very what interesting. Um, I'm still reading The Winter Witch. I was reading this. That w- I'm audiobooking The Winter Witch. That's all I've got now. I finished this today. Very nice. What are we reading next week, Maggie? That poem that you wanted to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a few poems, but in general, and Maggie and I haven't decided which one we're going to read yet or which few. But in general, we're talking about... It is by Phyllis Shand Alfrey, and the three poems you sent me were Now in Our Times, The Trueborn Villager, and Colonial Committee, and Resistance. Oh, and Nocturne. Yeah, so five to choose from. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about her for our 1950s bite-sized bits through the ages. Yay! Do we have any homework? My homework... Mm -mm. I've been okay so one of the things I really love to do when I am stressed out is to daydream I love daydreaming and so this book really encouraged my daydreaming and one of my latest daydreams is thinking about the possibility of me like someday owning property which wasn't really a possibility I ever thought about until like maybe a year ago so for me, my I'm going to do some self-care by like daydreaming and dreaming about owning property and the possibility of having bees and also looking at like ways I can get there. Very nice. Very nice. What about you, Miss Mags? Well, I feel like kind of a jerk now, but uh, <laughs> my husband and I are in a place where probably in the next, you know, like short-ish amount of time we're going to be owning a house where we could have bees so I think I mean short-ish I mean like the next 18 to 24 months nothing like crazy but close enough in the period of time where like this is something that I really want to make happen and therefore I think I probably need to start actively researching it a little bit more because right now my knowledge is really general and very spotty just based on the couple of beekeeper meetings that I've gone to And I think that if this is really something I want to kick off as soon as I own a home, then like I need to start thinking about it more actively and like saving money for it and figuring out how I'm actually going to be able to make it happen because time moves very fast now that you're an adult and that really isn't that far away. I mean, we don't have any set in stone plans, but like that's most likely what's going to happen. That's very exciting, Maggie. I did not know this for the RGBC listeners. <laughs> and just to be clear, like, this isn't a pity party. Like, my, I, I'm someday owning property because in my situation, it does not make sense for me to own property until a few years. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. That's that's fair enough. And who knows? Lots of things could change. Things are really up in the air right now with this whole pandemic situation. So, like, who fucking knows? All right. Well, I think that we'll see you all next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Take care of yourselves. Be self-reliant. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.